for today's sermon will come from Joel chapter 2. I'll be reading us Joel chapter 2, verses 17 through 27. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's word. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we come before God and his word today. Our Father, once again, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise that you have revealed to us who you are and who we are in your image and what your will is and your purposes are. Father, we ask this morning as we come before your word that you would help us. Holy Spirit, help us to understand this word, not just in our minds, but convince us of it, convict us by it, use it as the double-edged sword that it is to penetrate the deepest recesses of our beings, to lay us exposed before you, Father, to help us see the sin that remains in us and the ways that we need to continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word this day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the most challenging and difficult commands of Scripture for us to understand, for us to come to terms with, certainly for us to obey, is the command that is summed up in Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, where Paul says in, in, in the imperative voice, as a command, not, not as a suggestion, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, always. And then he even repeats that command again, right? Again I say... Rejoice always. 
And in Greek, that word always, pantote, means always. Rejoice always. Not just when times are pleasant. Not just when things feel good. Not just when circumstances are consistent with our own hopes and dreams and desires and ambitions and expectations. It's important to rejoice in those kind of times, right? It's important to give praise to God with grateful hearts for those times of his kind providence where he he causes the lines to fall in pleasant places. Psalm 16.6 says, and it's imperative that we learn and that we keep learning to rejoice also in those times when the circumstances are hard and painful and unpleasant for us. The times that don't feel good, but that we know because he's revealed in his word, in reality they are good because God is good always. And he tells us that he has sovereignly ordained all things and that he is at work in all things to bring about his good purposes in this world and in our lives and for his glory. And the bottom line of how we come to learn to be able to do that, to be able to rejoice always, even in the painful and difficult and unpleasant times, the bottom line is to not let our feelings dictate to us whether or not those times and those experiences are in actual reality good or bad, but to allow the Word of God to make that determination for us. And that's what Paul means, that's what God's Word means, that's what Joel means here in chapter 2 when they talk about rejoicing, even in the midst of hardship, see? Bible, when it talks about rejoicing in the midst of hardship, is not describing first and foremost a feeling. It's describing an attitude, which then leads to an activity. And attitudes are different than feelings. That's what we need to know. Feelings are primarily just emotional reactions to things that go on around us, that happen to us, where attitudes are different. They're a state of mind in response to those things. Attitudes are are when our minds make a moral judgment about the quality of the things that we experience. Are they good things or are they objectively bad things? And it's attitudes that then lead to actions and how we respond and react. What our minds conclude about something that happens is what determines what we do in response. And so very often, here's the problem, see? Very often, the problem is that our, our, our feelings about something are virtually indistinguishable from our attitude towards that thing, at least if you're like me. Very often I'll have a feeling about something and immediately that dictates my attitude towards it and then that irrevocably leads to a course of action which may be good and very often is not good. Because so often we allow our feelings to define our attitudes and therefore our actions and feelings are awful, terrible guides. Especially for people who have sin remaining in us and that is all of us. And so, for example, for Paul, who said in Philippians 4.4, rejoice always, it didn't feel good to him to be sitting in Rome in prison, chained to a guard all day, every day. Didn't feel good, but nonetheless he rejoiced. It was his mindset. It was his, his disposition in the midst of his hard circumstances. And the reason why is because he viewed those circumstances through the lens of the reality of God's goodness and faithfulness and the purposes that God was working out through that difficulty. And so he wrote the letter to the Philippians and, and instructed them and instructed us to be rejoicing always even in our suffering. 
because, see, Paul's mindset towards his painful trials wasn't determined by his feelings about those things. His mindset, his, his attitude was determined by the sure and unerring guide of the truth of God's word, which teaches us that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is always working out his purposes, and that God's glory in those purposes matters infinitely more than my own feelings and my own experiences. So by taking his thoughts captive to those infallible realities, Paul's mind was able to judge his circumstances in the light of those realities instead of in the light of his feelings about them. And so in spite of miserable feelings, Paul had an attitude of trusting God's sovereign goodness and resting in the goodness of God's purposes, which led to rejoicing in his sufferings when he felt bad. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, felt bad, felt absolutely agonizingly miserable all night long, and yet judged those horrifying circumstances of what he was about to go through in light of the will of God, his Father, and not by his own human feelings. And so his attitude towards what was going to happen was trusting God, was contented. And so he saw what he was enduring was, was ultimately good, even though it felt bad. And so for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So, so this is some of the hardest stuff for us to learn, right, as followers of Jesus Christ, whose lives are hidden with Christ and God, like Paul says in Colossians 3. There's people who say, it is no longer I who live in Galatians 2, but Christ lives in me. It's hard as new creations in Christ Jesus, in whom sin still remains, to learn to cultivate minds that are captive to Christ and his word so much that no matter how things feel to us, our attitudes are trusting and resting and our lives are rejoicing always in God's goodness and faithfulness in all things, even the hard things. And this is one of, one of the central things that the Holy Spirit cultivates in us through the living active power of his word in places like the book of Joel, as we've been seeing. So we've seen over and over the last couple weeks as we've been studying this book, how in the midst of earthly trials, in the midst of absolute catastrophes, like the locust invasion that Judah faced in Joel's day, it's massively important. It's imperative that our minds and our hearts be fixed and focused on the realities of God's ultimate sovereignty and goodness in all things. Otherwise, we won't survive. We won't endure. We won't make it. Today we're going to focus on verses 17 through 27 of Joel chapter 2, where the theme of rejoicing is absolutely central. God beckons his people, verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. Because, having brought them through a terrible ordeal, God now had a very merciful purpose in store for them. And just like the, the immediate trial of this locust plague, just like that was intended by God to point ahead, remember from last week to to an ultimate time of judgment that would consume the whole earth, the whole heavens, the whole universe. Now, he's about to pour out mercy in their immediate time frame in a way that will foreshadow his ultimate purposes for peace and righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth, which is what we'll see as we move into chapter 3 next time. Last week, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, we were focused, remember, on the two kinds of trumpets that God commanded to be blown in the light of this present calamity that was going on of that devastating locust invasion. One trumpet was supposed to warn people 
And the other trumpet was supposed to rouse them to action, remember? And that was, that was teaching us to view all of our present circumstances in this world, especially the hard ones, especially the painful ones, as, as precursors of God's ultimate purposes of judgment in this world on that coming day of the Lord that we learned about, when Jesus will return to unleash all the fullness of God's wrath against sin in, in final measure in this world. So the, the trials, the sufferings of this world are birth pangs, Jesus teaches us, anticipating the great and coming day of his return. And so God's people need to, in the midst of them, sound the alarm, blow the trumpet, and warn the lost in this world that they need to turn to him before that great and terrible coming day of his wrath. And... All of the things that go on in our lives that are difficult need to serve as trumpets that rouse us to action. And specifically, as we saw, to be gathering together regularly before him to be strengthened, to be equipped, to be able to persevere ourselves until the end, to run with endurance, to grow more and more dependent on our God, to be strengthened more and more for faithfulness to him as we await the day of his coming. So here now, verse 17, which acts like a kind of hinge in the book of Joel, God addresses the priesthood, specifically in Judah, and calls them to a particular course of action as the focus shifts now from looking at the past, this difficulty that they faced in the locust trial, to starting to look ahead to what God has in store in the future. And the future will mean both in terms of what he is about to do for Judah in Joel's day that will be merciful, and he's got the long view also in terms of what he is ultimately going to do, not just to judge the whole world and all of the nations, but to ultimately guarantee eternal peace for his people on the coming day of the Lord. That's what we'll get to next week. For this week, remember... He's told the people to gather together. He's told the people, because they're going through a horrible time, to cry out to him, to come together, to assemble, to worship in the midst of their present distress. And in verse 17, he addresses the priests themselves, and he says, he gives them some very specific instructions, doesn't he? Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the nations say among the peoples, where is their God? So the priests are given some very specific instructions here. Where to stand, literally. What to do. How to pray, specifically. Because the reality was that when things got really tough in Judah with this national calamity that they were facing, the priests had stopped doing the very things that definitionally priests are supposed to do. The priests were supposed to stand as mediators between God and the people. They were supposed to stand before God as, as spokesmen for the people, offering intercession and prayers and making sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And they were supposed to stand before the people as spokesmen for God, speaking the word of God to the people, instructing the people how to live for the sake of God's glory. That's what they were, they were supposed to be mediators between the people and God, and they had stopped doing that, see? They were supposed to be ministers of the Lord, servants, both of the Lord and of the people, but they weren't serving either the people or the Lord because they become entirely self-serving in the midst of this hard trial that had fallen on Judah. And see, that's in, in the hard times, that's when they needed to be ministering and serving the most, right? But they weren't because they become entirely focused on themselves instead of on the people and instead of on God. And so here now, God tells the priests to get with it, to take up a specific position in the temple. It says between the vestibule and the altar. The vestibule was the, the threshold of the dwelling place of God and the Holy of Holies, and the altar was where the sacrifices 
were made on behalf of the people. So you see where they're supposed to stand? In this particular place between God and his people so that they could resume their role as, as mediators, which they'd abdicated, as ministers, as servants. And if the people ever needed ministering too, if they ever needed intercessory prayer, if they ever needed someone to mediate the mercies of God to them, now was the time because things were bad in Judah. And so now this is what God calls the priests to do, to stand there in that place and to pray on behalf of the people. And the focus of the prayer is prescribed very specifically by God and it's to be it's to be concentrated first on the mercy of God and then second on the glory of God. First, spare your people, O Lord. This isn't by the priest's initiative. They didn't come up with this idea to go and plead God's mercy on their own. God says to them, go and stand between me and the people and, and plead with the people, plead with me to spare them. It's an appeal to the compassion of God. It's a revelation by God of the merciful heart of the Almighty. It's connected to those beautiful words that we saw last time in verse 13, right? Where God said, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster when people turn to him for mercy that's who God is God hates sin he's not a pushover he he's jealous righteously so in his holiness he's zealous for faithfulness like a husband is towards his wife which is so central to the message that we saw in the book of Hosea he will judge all wickedness. He will right every wrong and at the same time he loves to show mercy and to give grace to those who trust him for it. Joel's called out to the people to cry out to God already in this book to turn to him for mercy. You remember in verse 14 he said cry out to God for mercy because who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing. It's possible, he says. I can't speak for God. I can't know the mind and the ultimate purposes of God. But I do know his heart is merciful. And if you call out to him for mercy, who knows whether he will relent and leave a blessing. Now see, when Joel speaks in those terms, he knows on the one hand not to take God's grace for granted. And that's one of the things he's teaching us. Not to take God's grace for granted. Joel is not a prophet of easy believism, where people presume on God's grace, where people say, well, it doesn't really matter how I live my life or what I do because God's a gracious God and he'll always just forgive me. Leaning on and presuming on the grace of God is sort of tacit permission to do whatever you want to do and go on sinning. I counseled a married couple once and the woman was preparing to leave her husband for no good reason, for no biblical grounds, no warrant at all. She, was, she hadn't cheated on her. She didn't think he had. He hadn't been abusing her. She didn't think he had. And she said to me these words, I know there's no biblical grounds. I know it's not God's will. I know it's sin, she said. But I know that God will forgive me for it later, she said. Do you ever think that way? Do you ever, do you ever give yourself permission to do something that you know is wrong, that you know is not of faith? that you know is just according to your own desires and not the will of God, and, and you're thinking it'll be okay because His grace will cover it later? I'll tell you what, every time you sin, that's what you're doing. And God hates that kind of attitude. He despises people presuming upon His grace. 
and that kind of heart disposition is, is not what Joel is talking about here when he says, come to the Lord and plead his mercy. That kind of presuming on God's grace is not what inclines God to relent over his judgments towards sin or leave a blessing instead. To deliberately withdraw from the will of God and presume on his grace to cover it anyway is to remove yourself from the realm where his blessings can be expected and to place yourself instead into a, a position where you should expect his, his judgment. So Joel's focus here on the mercy and the grace of God, rooted and grounded in the compassionate heart of God, is in no way presumptive. He in no way assumes that God is just going to simply overlook the sins of the people who, who willingly indulge in sin and continue to do that. And when God talks about mercy for sinners, he's, he's calling people to turn from their sin in turning to him for grace. And that's always what repentance is. It's a, it's a full turn. Nothing short of that. Away from sin and unto God and righteousness and holiness and the grace that you need for that. It's a forsaking of sin and a pleading for God's mercy and grace. That's what, that's what Joel's describing here. Joel's perspective on God's mercy is the same as Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, he calls out to the people, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. You don't, you don't seek the grace of God without seeking righteousness. Seek humility. And perhaps, in that way, you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. If you're not seeking righteousness and holiness and, and the forsaking of sinfulness while you're seeking His mercy, don't expect to find His mercy. So where, where Joel pleaded with the people in those verses that we saw last week to return to the Lord in sin-forsaking and mercy-seeking faithfulness, here now the priests standing between the vestibule and the altar are pleading with God himself by God's instruction, spare your people, O Lord. Knowing that God's judgments are always just and knowing that his mercy and steadfast love are abundant. And so they're instructed by God himself to plead the mercies of God on behalf of the people. And to do it, secondly, focused on the glory of God. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach and a byword among the nations. This is what had happened. Horrible things had befallen the people of Judah who were supposed to be living in faithfulness to their God and the, and the pagan nations were laughing at them, mocking, where's your God now? You serve this God, but look, he's not doing any good for you. Why isn't he saving you? If he's so powerful and so good, why didn't he stop this disaster from, hey, isn't that the way the world talks about us? You believe in this all-powerful, all-wise, all-good God. I don't even believe he exists because look at how many horrible things are going. Where's God now? This is the slandering reproach that unbelievers, that the nations pile upon the reputation of God. And so the priests are to plead for God to glorify himself by, by pouring out mercy on the people, sparing the people when they didn't deserve to be spared. Having put his justice on display, now the plea is for God to manifest the abundance of his mercy and to glorify himself in that way. And it's it's this reality of abundance that becomes the focus of the rest of these verses. And it's the reality of the abundance of God's mercy described in a, a variety of ways here that tunes our hearts, no matter what is going on in our lives, to be people who rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what. 
in these verses, 18 through 27, Hosea's humble sort of assuming who knows if God will relent or bless gives way to God himself saying, oh, I'm going to bless. I'm going to bless abundantly, not just a little bit. I'm going to pour out mercy in a flood of undeserved steadfast love. And so here marks the turning point of this whole book in two ways. Turning first from a view of the past and the present catastrophe of this locust plague to the future of God's purposes, both in judgment and in redemption. And a turning secondly from from his calling his people to weep and mourn in the midst of what was happening to them to now start to rejoice because of what God was going to do. Verse 18, with all the people gathered and assembled together, with the priests acting again as, as mediators, crying out to God, pleading his mercy, the steadfast love of the compassion of our God is poured out upon his people. Spare them, O God, and then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered, and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. You remember the grain and the wine and the oil from chapter 1? Those were, those were the staples, the basics of their everyday lives and, and diets. They absolutely depended on all three of those things for basic living, Remember? And the locust horde had, had come in and absolutely devastated all of that. Leaving, so the olives were gone, no oil. The grapes were gone, no wine. The grain was gone, no food. Nothing to cook with, nothing to heat. You remember? Nothing to drink. Because the water had become fetid. And so the people, the live, even the wild animals were, were starving, were languishing and so God is now saying he's going to bring all of that back. And he's going to do it lavishly. He's going to do it abundantly in no small measure. He's going to, he's going to give it all back in such a measure that they will all be fully satisfied, he says. And that word satisfied there means sava in Hebrew. It means it means, it means to be filled up so much that you literally don't want any more. Do you eat that way sometimes? I try not to, but sometimes it's just so good and you just keep eating and keep eating and I literally can't eat another bite all day. That's what this word means, right? The threshing floors, verse 24 says, the threshing floors will be absolutely full of grain. There won't be any room to thresh anymore. All of the storage vats for the wine and the oil will, will literally be overflowing. This is how lavishly God, this is how abundantly God is going to bless his people now. For how many years here in California have we struggled with, with drought? And so prayed for rain, right? Especially a couple years ago when the wildfires raid right through this valley, right over that mountain, half a mile from here, right? And we all had to evacuate and wonder if there was going to be homes and a church to come back to. And we prayed for God to bring back the rains, right? Every Wednesday night, Ted Whiting would, would say, don't forget that we need to pray for rain. And so we would. We'd, we'd plead with God for rain, and now here we are in January of 2023, and we're satisfied, right? With the abundance of the rains that the Lord has sent this year. I think we're all feeling a little bit like we're good. <laughs> we don't need any more right now, right? We're thankful this week that it's not raining, that the sun is out, and he has... He has given us a, a time to dry out and let the rivers recede now. We're full now. We're satisfied now, right? 
We have no sense of lack. We don't really want more. That's what God is describing here. That's, that's what satisfied means. That's what abundance means. When the grain and the oil and the wine come back, no one will lack for any and everyone will have more than enough. And the point is, this is who God is revealing himself to be. Not the kind of God who, after he punishes sin and then relents of the punishments and the judgments, is stingy with his mercy and grace and provision. Anybody grow up in a house like that? You do something wrong and you get the rod, you get the punishment, and then when that's done, was, was the love lavish? Was the grace abundance? Or was it this ongoing, now you have to live with the shame of what you've done? That's not God, see? That is not the heart of God our Father. There are no half measures to his goodness and kindness and mercy. They literally cannot be contained. He is lavish and he is generous and he makes our cups to overflow with his blessings that's who he is and just like we were reminded last week if we're ever tempted to doubt that if we ever find ourselves thinking that that God's not being merciful enough to us if we're ever tempted to think you know what I deserve more than what God's giving me if we're ever tempted to think, you know what, God's being stingy towards me right now. Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe he's not really for me. And if we're honest, that's exactly what we're all feeling and what our attitude is whenever we succumb to discontentment and grumbling and complaining. And whenever we allow that to be our attitude towards our circumstances and towards our God, Doubting his goodness, doubting his faithfulness. If we ever find ourselves in that position, and if you're like me, you do. All too often, all we have to do is call to mind not only all of the, the myriad ways that he blesses us every single day by causing the rain to fall, by causing the sun to shine, by giving me oxygen to breathe, food to eat, a roof over my head, good friends and brothers and sisters like you all to fellowship with. Countless, thousands, every single day of, of tangible blessings, but not just that. None of which I deserve, right? I don't deserve any of that. But he gives them anyways. But especially, I've got to call to mind the eternally lavish and abundant mercies and graces that God has poured out in abundance in Jesus Christ, who bled and died, who turned God's holy wrath away from me forever, who paid for every sin, who secured for me an eternal redemption, forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, glorification, a fully secured future and hope and inheritance that is so massively abundant that I'll never fully comprehend the height and depth and breadth of the great and steadfast love of God by which all of that has been lavished upon me. That's who he is. And that's how he loves. No matter how I feel, that's what's real about him. He is full and lavish and abundant in his love beyond all that we could ever ask or even think to ask. Look at verse 20. He says to the people of Judah who have been ravaged by this locust plague and the famine that was a result of it and then the pestilence, remember, that came from it. He says, I will remove the northerner far from you. The northerner was a colloquial way of speaking about an enemy, an invader, because of the topography of Israel and Judah, because of the geography of the whole Middle Eastern region at that time. 
their biggest threats in terms of militarily. They came from the east, but they came by way of the north. If they were going to get invaded by a human army, that army would march up along the Fertile Crescent and come down against them from the north. And so the term northerner was just their vernacular for invader, for enemy. And that's how God refers to this locust army that had invaded them here. That's why he calls them the northerner. And he says, I'll remove him far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea, and the stench and the foul of him will rise, for he has done great things. Great things doesn't mean good things. It just means big things, profound things. And as we saw the size and the scale of that locust horde and, and all the devastation that it had brought, that it was profound. It was great in that sense. And you remember from a few weeks ago how these locust swarms, once they come into an area and eat everything there is to eat, they would fly off and die. And if they died over the seas, then they would be washed ashore. Their carcasses would be washed ashore and they would rot and cause a, a terrible odor which would cause typhus to spread and cause disease in their wake. Well, here God seems to be saying he's going to remove them to the seas and they're going to die and decay and, and you'll smell them out there, but they're not going to wash up. They're not going to bring any pestilence with them because God's mercy is going to protect you from that. And so he says in verse 21, fear not, O land. You don't have to be afraid of them. Because as great as they are, God is greater. See, that's the point. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Yes, the locusts did great damage, but the Lord is going to do something greater. So again, we're called to remember to call to our minds, to fix our thoughts captive to the reality that in this world, as great as our troubles are, they are never, ever even close to being as great and powerful and profound as the greatness of our God, who reigns sovereign over all of them. Even the beasts of the field here, verse 22, are called to fear not, because there are no trials that God is not sovereign over. Because there is nothing in this universe that can cross the boundaries of the purposes that he has decreed. God says to everything that goes on in this world thus far and no further. Yeah, there's storms that rage in this world. Of all kinds. And, and they, they're frightening to us. Psalm 107 talks about people whose courage melted away. When they were caught in a ferocious storm, they reeled and they staggered. They were at their wit's end. So what did they do? They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress because he made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. And so we see this is part of cultivating rejoicing. By fixing our minds on reality and not just what we feel, it's so crucial to know and to remember and to call to our minds that the Almighty God is sovereign over all of the storms, all of them of every kind in our lives. They cannot rage where God says, be still. And remember, the one who says, be still to the storms is Jesus Christ himself. And that's what he said on the Sea of Galilee, right? In the boat where his disciples were. And we have a picture of it out there in the lobby that Rembrandt painted. Some of them are trying to deal with it in their own strength by, by making sure the sails are set. Some of them are leaning over the sides, probably losing their lunch, cowering in fear, maybe thinking of jumping overboard. And then there's the few who are at the foot of Jesus because they know that he's the only answer because he's the sovereign one. And he said, be still. And the storm obeyed. The wind obeyed. The rain obeyed. The one in whom all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Never fear the storms, whatever they are. Never fear the northerners. 
whoever they are in your life, when the Almighty God who rules them all is with you and He is always with you. Always. And here in Joel chapter 2, as the people have come to Him and gathered and assembled together to cry out to Him, and as the priests are pleading His mercy and grace, God says to His people, I'm with you. I'm going to turn away the northerner. And that day it was this terrible locust swarm. And he says, I'm going to restore your fortunes, which the locust has devoured. That's the focus of verses 21 through 25. Not only will they be gone, but everything that they destroyed will be restored. And again, with an emphasis on its abundance and its lavishness, the pastures will be covered once again with green grass. The fruit trees will become prolific. The rains will pour down from the skies and water the fields so that the barns and the silos and the vats will overflow as God restores the years that the swarming locusts devoured, verse 25 says. Have you, in in God's providence, have you experienced the pain of loss in this world? Of course you have. We all have. Many of you have in in ways that are so much more than I could ever possibly even imagine. Well, just, just know this as God reveals himself to us. Whatever we've lost in this world, whatever we will lose, whatever we could possibly lose in this world, as great as that loss is, as painful as that loss is, it literally cannot be compared to the abundance and the eternal greatness of what God has given us and what we have gained in Christ Jesus and of all that he has laid up for us in glory. Didn't Paul say, whatever gain I had in this world, he had a reputation, he had fame, he had the respect of people, he had money, he thought he had a righteousness that was impeccable before God. Because he was a Pharisee, he knew the scriptures back and forward, he understood the law and kept it with precision. Thought he had it all, but he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Nothing else in this world matters. I count it all as rubbish, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is where a mindset and an attitude, a disposition of rejoicing comes from, even when the trials are hard and the, the pain is brutal and things feel bad. This is where we can cultivate an attitude of rejoicing anyways. It comes from knowing that the God who turned away Judah's locust infestation and then restored all that the locusts had destroyed and lavished the people with fruitful abundance in this world, this is the same God who is unchanging and unchangeable, remember? And he has come to us in Christ Jesus who has turned away the wrath of God from us, the worst northerner, the worst enemy. And lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in replacement. He has given us a a rock-solid, Holy Spirit-guaranteed promise of an eternal inheritance that is absolutely incomprehensible and unfathomable. An inheritance that that is given by him, an inheritance that will be with him, an inheritance that will be of him in his kingdom, in his presence, in his glory forever. Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's what we are in Christ. Adopted heirs with Christ Jesus of God himself. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. 
What more could be hoped for? What greater abundance could be had? And it's ours in Christ, provided we suffer with him in this world, so as not to lay up all our treasures and hopes here, in order that we may be also glorified with him. For Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's your focus. There's where rejoicing comes from, even when things in this world seem insufferably hard, brutally hard, painful. They feel bad. What has God given you in Christ? Its fullness and its abundance, its lavishness, makes whatever you could suffer in this world seem like a tiny, tiny speck. Fix your mind on that truth. Call that truth to mind in the worst of your trials, and he will begin more and more to cultivate in you an attitude of rejoicing, even in the most sorrowful of your sufferings. And there's one more way here as we close up in these verses in Joel 2 that God would help us to cultivate that kind of attitude. He says to the people of Judah here in verses 26 and 27, and he's echoing what he, what he said back at the end of verse 19. He says that in pouring out this lavish and abundant mercy, he will no more make them a reproach among the nations. He will remove all of their shame. The mouths of all of those pagans who mocked them for worshiping the one true God will be shut. The voices of all of those who said, where's your God now? In the midst of their great distress, those voices will be silenced and drowned out by the overwhelming flood of God's abundant mercies that will be lavished on them as a result of their turning to him and crying out to him for that mercy. Verses 26 and 27 say that all of the shame that they felt because of the taunting voice of the pagans will be eradicated. The shame will be eradicated by the overflow of God's steadfast love and mercy towards them. Again, Christians, is that not a message that we absolutely need to hear loud and clear? Every single day, as the people who have been so lavished by God's great love in Christ Jesus. We don't just have grain and wine and oil. We have forgiveness and justification and everlasting life. All of the shame, all of the shame that was heaped on and piled on us that we feel because of all of the sin and all of the things that we've done in the past, all of that junk that the devil loves to wave in our faces and taunt us with because of our sin has been washed away by the torrential flood of God's grace in Christ Jesus. All of it has been drowned out by the unfathomable lavishness of the steadfast love of the one who says, I don't condemn you. It's so easy for me to condemn myself. To live in that shame. To listen to those taunts. Instead of tuning into the voice of God who says, I don't condemn you. Because by his grace, Jesus has paid it all. He's nailed it all to the cross. He's taken away all of the reproach. So often the devil tries to and succeeds in discouraging us from even drawing near to God in our times of need because we don't even feel like we can cry out to him because the devil is taunting us with the shamefulness of our sin and making us feel unworthy and tempting us to doubt the sufficiency of God's great love for us in Christ. What do you do in those times? Well, you, you look to the proof of that great love. You look to the cross. Always look to that cross where Jesus died and where the wrath of God was satisfied. That's how full 
the measure of Christ's grace is, Christians. And what he restored for Judah in Joel chapter 2, crops and grain and wine and oil, food, livelihood in this earth, was just such a, such a small little foreshadowing of the great and lavish abundance that he has poured out on us in Christ. This is how full the abundance of the atoning work of Jesus is. It literally leaves God with no appetite for wrath towards you, for judgment towards you, for condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. As full as their silos were, as full as their vats were, as full as our rivers were, leaving us to say we don't need any more. God doesn't need any more than what Christ has done to satisfy his wrath and his justice. And we need to preach that gospel reality to ourselves every single day, don't we? Like Jerry Bridges used to say. We need every single day to proclaim the gospel because we forget, we listen to the taunts, and we, we hearken back to the shame. And we need to We need to do what Robert Murray McShane used to say, right? Every time you look at yourself and see the sin within, that's a good thing to do, but you need to take ten looks at Christ for every one look at self. And in Christ, we need to see and remember and fix our minds on all of the abundant and lavish love of God towards us. And we need to say, if this God is for us, as he was in Christ Jesus, then who can possibly be against us? What enemy, what northerner could threaten us? What trial could ultimately cause me to fear? Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? Romans 8.32 And when Paul says that, when he says he will graciously give us all things, it doesn't just mean everything that you hope for and dream for in this life, in this groaning, sin-cursed world. Sometimes God's goodness and faithfulness allows us to suffer the loss of the things that we enjoy in this world, that we depend on in this world, that we cling to in this world, so that we can learn more and more to fix our eyes on the greater glory that is surely to come because he's promised it to us and purchased it for us in Christ Jesus. For this momentary light affliction, Paul says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They don't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And God in his mercy teaches us and reminds us of how transient the things that are seen are by by taking them away. Which is painful, but he he doesn't do it because he likes us to hurt. He doesn't do it because he's not good, because he's not loving Because he's not for us, he does it to make us look at the things that are unseen and eternal that are better. And in the abundance of his great love towards us and Jesus, with our eyes fixed on him, that's how we can run with endurance. Knowing that he's going to usher us one day into the entrance of his eternal kingdom. That's how we can be rejoicing always. No matter what's going on in our lives. Because in his immeasurable love and mercy, he has done and he will do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. So let's pray to him together this morning. And then let's sing about his great love together this morning as we come to the table to receive grace from him that we need to endure and to rejoice Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for your kindness towards us, for your patience with us, for the merciful ways in which you have treated us.
for the fact that you have removed our guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. For the fact that you do not treat us according to our sins, but that you have lavished us with steadfast love and mercy in tangible ways. Here in this world, things that we can see as expressions of your fatherly kindness because we know that every good blessing comes from your hand. And especially, Father, in unfathomably abundant ways that are ours for eternity in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins, the justification before you in Christ through faith alone. And the eternal hope of glory that is ours in Christ. Father, would you cause us to be a people who are rejoicing? Would you cause us to be a people who are resting? Would you cause us to be a people who are trusting and who are running with endurance? And would you glorify yourself in us and satisfy us with your goodness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.